We'll hear argument next to number 95668, Osceolo Ironworks, Inc. versus National Labor Relations Board. Mr. O'Reilly, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Some eight years ago, we started a what I thought was a run-of-the-mill uh, garden-variety type uh, labor dispute, which uh, has grown and grown, and uh, here we are. In the course of a collective bargaining dispute, a, a strike arose, picketing uh, took place. Immediately during the course of this garden-variety uh, dispute, 40% of the employees, the bargaining unit, cross the line. So the same 40%, which it's a small unit, that 40% is only nine employees, uh, were bad-mouthing the union. The employer, during the course of this uh, five or six week strike, came the belief that uh, because of the 40%, uh, the union did not have a tremendously strong uh, percentage of support, and it shot across the bow of the uh, union uh, bargaining position, the, a uh, rather extreme shot, it beefed up its contract proposal. However, the significant point when it beefed it up, it did not have then reason to believe that the union was not a majority representative. It had every reason, in fact, the, it would, uh, to believe that the union still maintained its majority status. But it shot this uh, across the bow of the union, this beefed up union proposal, and at that time, the negotiations were broken off. The very next day, the union abandoned the picket line, the pickets went down, and a number of extraordinary events took place over the next three business days. Everyone, almost everyone, came back to work. Of those who came back to work, a number of them did the same as their predecessors of 40% who had come back earlier across the picket line earlier, were knocking the union, being very critical of the union, in fact, four additional employees uh, resigned from the union after they came back, spoke to company representatives, said, we don't need the union. I don't know why we wanted a union in the first place. Three of these individuals who were thus bad-mouthing the union had been picketing. That Friday morning, Friday afternoon, they were in saying to the company, uh, we never needed a union Mr. in the first place. Mr. Chrisser, uh, is it? Uh, excuse me, Mr. O'Reilly. O'Reilly, yes. Um, are you making any claim here that the union, in fact, lacked majority support at the time uh, the union accepted the offer? Justice O'Connor, I've been making that claim not only today, but for the last eight years. Uh, I know the issue has been raised in the respondent. Is that issue in front of us, do you think, I, properly? I believe it is, Your Honor. Uh, particularly... Uh, Did I, I, the uh, board deal with the case in that posture or not? I, I somehow thought that we had uh, before us a, the issue of whether there was a good faith doubt, not whether there was in fact lack of support. Justice O'Connor, I believe you have both issues uh, before you. The facts clearly indicate, for instance, the company's telegram that it sent eventually in response to the okay. union's Sunday evening telegram said, we uh, have reason to believe that the union no longer represents a majority. The, 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 there may be any number of facts in the case that are not before us. Your question presented is whether an employer is bound by a union's acceptance of an earlier proposal for a collective when at the time of the union's accept, the employer had a reasonable basis for a good faith doubt of the union's continued majority status. 
that is I correct. don't see that as raising the question, in fact, as to whether the union had lost its majority status. Well, of course, uh, in fact, the, that was, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that was raised in our original answer to the uh, complaint eight years ago at the Labor Board. We also used the phrase uh, uh, good faith doubt. And the reason we did it, because uh, it's easier for a, uh, an employer to defend and to prove its uh, defense uh, by through circumstantial evidence of uh, creating a good faith doubt, but we did. But the issues are quite different, possibly, and I wonder if we aren't bound by how the question is presented in your petition for certiorari. I I think the issues may may vary, but in this particular case, I think they're uh, so closely uh, intertwined that uh, they can be treated as as one uh, and and the same. For instance, the Court of Appeals, who heard the the First Circuit, heard this case twice, and... uh, both in their first decision as well as in their second decision, they treated it, notwithstanding the original issue having been, in the pleadings having been framed as a good faith doubt case, they treated it in both decisions as uh, uh, a question of the employer attempting to prove before the administrative law judge and before the National Labor Relations Board that, in fact, the union had lost its majority status. Is that the board rule, that even if you were to show unquestionably, never mind good faith doubt, that uh, the union no longer had majority status, that uh, the same result would ensue? No, I think the, uh, the only difference, uh, Justice Scalia, would be uh, if we, the employer, had raised and proved, proved established at the trial level that we had a good faith doubt, it would then be incumbent upon uh, the general counsel to establish that, in fact, uh, the union had maintained but I'm, uh, I'm majority I'm asking you what the board rule is. Is the board rule that neither the establishment of a good faith doubt, nor even the establishment of actual non-majority status will suffice to get you out of the contract here. Now, as, as I understand the board decision, they would, uh, decisions, they would take the position that if, if we had established, under the facts of this case, actual loss of majority, at least affects my friends at the right. AFL-CIO and their amicus brief said that would be enough, the board has reserved in this in this case, okay. uh, its position with regard to whether or not the actual loss majority would have entitled us, under the facts of this case, uh, to send part back that reply telegram uh, uh, disavowing any further obligations. So it is a separate question then, and, and um, um, I suspect it is, but we feel the result would be the same un- under both uh, uh, scenarios. Mr. O'Reilly, will you? I, I, my understanding was that your friends at the AFL-CIO took the position. But there's only one way to establish that the union has lost its majority, and that is through a secret ballot. They, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, they took the same position, of course, and filed an almost identical brief in the Curtin-Matheson case, saying that the board rule that this court has implicitly uh, affirmed over the years, the board rule that a good faith doubt uh, entitles you to uh, withdraw your uh, a recognition of the union. Uh, they took the position in that case and in the amicus in this case that that is no longer a, a good role and that the only way a, a, uh, uh, an employer can contest the majority status of an incumbent union is to follow decertification. And they also and said would, in their brief that general counsel had recommended such a position to the board. Well, Where does that stand, do you know? My, my understanding, I've had an opportunity to look into that. I contacted, and I can only reflect what was uh, what I was told by the uh, employer's counsel in that case, that uh, the lot, the, the, and there was a board decision some three years ago in that case, it was on appeal to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, 
and the board then requested that it be referred back to the board. Uh, counsel for the employer indicated that oral argument in that case was conducted a year and a half ago and no decision has come out of it. So we may be talking about something that really doesn't matter anymore. I mean, if, if, if they, uh, they deep-six deep the whole uh, good faith doubt rule, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. You, you, you would have to have... Well, I, I would just suggest if you look at the... If, if, if my I mean, it matters to your client. I, I, I don't want to say it doesn't matter to you. But I, I'm not sure what the likelihood is of the board adopting that, particularly in view of the scenario I just described. This case was decided within the past year. Oral argument in the Lee Lumber case was a year and a half ago. The board certainly would have had an opportunity to adopt uh, the general counsel's position in the meantime, and at least certainly in this case, it did not. But if, if you, we, you are going, in this case, on the proposition that there's a reasonable doubt rule, so that the question is, at what point can the employer... Um, it's, it's really a timing question, I think, that the reasonable doubt... I, I think you're agreed, are you not, that if you had withdrawn the offer on the 18th or 19th, on the basis of your good faith doubt, there'd be no contract that they could accept. There would be nothing out there for them to, uh, to accept, is correct. So why can't the board say, we have to draw the line someplace, we're going to draw it at the union's acceptance of the contract? Well, of course, the board apparently is adopting this bright line theory that uh, it, it's a lot easier to administer the act if we have a specific date. Uh, and uh, obviously, I don't have a problem with that concept. What I'm just saying is the specific date that they have picked, the bright line rule in this case, there is no logical uh, basis for it. The logical basis, apparently, is that uh, sending a uh, Sunday evening telegram somehow transforms a union that the employer had every reason to then believe uh, and ha had a good faith doubt as to its majority status. Somehow, this telegram uh, Sunday evening telegram transforms that apparently minority union into a majority I union. I take it that their basis is not a telegram. Their basis is a contract. Which right? cre created Say once the contract is created. Created you by question a it for the period of the contract bar. Yeah. And, and there and doesn't. I mean, what is illogical about saying there's a contract bar? It starts when the contract was created. If, if you if, have a complaint about the union, make it before the contract is after. You're barred. That's the contract bar. Right? And, that, and that, as I understand it, is the rule. And why is that illogical? I and that's their bright line theory. I, I think the illogical uh, argument comes into play uh, this way, uh, uh, Justice Breyer. We have an obligation as an employer dealing with any union at, at all times to see to it, to investigate, to analyze what is the status of this union. Is it a majority union? Or is it a minority union? Obviously, if it's a minority union, does not represent a majority of employees, it's illegal under the statute for us to... Yeah, right, even though it's been certified? Uh, can, can you be subjected to liability for dealing with a properly certified union? Yes, right. At least beyond the, uh, uh, this is the certification in this case. Uh, and, of course, none of the employees who are involved in that certification process are, are still employed by the company. But the certification in that case was uh, in the 1970s, as I recall. So you have, you could deal with... Uh, the, the board principle is that once it's certified, there's an irrebuttable presumption, no matter what happens to the majority status for a one-year period. For one so year. even though you know as a matter of moral certainty that the union has lost its majority status during that year, not only is it not illegal to deal with them, you have to but deal with But that gets us back to Justice Breyer's question that I don't think you fully answered. Uh, the, the point was, uh, why not make the contract bar rule... Uh, become effective upon the acceptance of a contract. We know when contracts are accepted. We know when they're not. Why not make that the bright line rule? 
we suggest, uh, Justice Kennedy, that the employer should have an opportunity when it is coming across a crescendo of events that happened in this case uh, during this three-day period, should have an opportunity to analyze, review those events, to see whether, in fact, it is dealing with a majority or a minority union. And in this case, we suggest that it didn't have. Uh, just but you could have done that by withdrawing your offer. You could have sent them a telegram just as readily as they sent you one. In, in view of the board's decision uh, in this case, Your Honor, I, would I wouldn't. <laughs> I certainly wish I had done it. No, but I mean, you and could. Now the world knows that uh, that's probably the best way to do it. Unfortunately, that does not advance productive. Uh, negotiations, where any time you have a... Well, when the point, when the point comes that you're questioning the union's uh, continuing capacity as a representative, uh, there's going to be a, uh, a, a, a certain chill upon the proceedings anyway. Absolutely. I mean, you've got you to accept that. Uh, and uh, I don't see that the chill is going to be any greater by withdrawing the offer on that ground. Uh, than, than it is by, uh, by doing what you want to do. Well, I'll just take two of the major events, if I may, Your Honor, that led to the employers eventually uh, creating in its own mind the good faith doubt. Uh, seven union supporters, including the union steward. Uh, the employer received that uh, information on Friday afternoon, that hearsay information, that these seven uh, are employed elsewhere and aren't coming back. Now, they, they should have an opportunity to review that. Uh, have, uh, was that decision made out of anger? Are they going to be back next Wednesday, maybe the next week? They should have some time to, to look into that. The other information uh, was May that... I just interrupt with one question to be sure I understand correctly. If you did review it thoroughly and concluded uh, and, and assumed the facts are that there was, even though you had your doubts, that there still was majority support for the union, uh, why is it all unfair? If, if the other had happened, if you had been able to prove there was not, your doubt was correct, even though they accepted the offer, you could get out of it, couldn't you? That, that's correct, Your Honor, as long as we move quicker than they do. If, uh, yeah, but even if you didn't move quickly enough, if, if your doubts had been substantiated by your thorough investigation on Monday and Tuesday, you still would have been protected. If we would have been protected only if we had withdrawn the offer or withdrawn recognition. Or if you could prove they did not have a majority. Our, our position is we would be, if, if at the time of that telegram, and we had the opportunity to conduct this investigation, uh, even though we had not won that race to the telegraph office, uh, we would be we would be protected. And that's that's our position in, in this case, uh, Justice Stevens. That the mere fact that they send the telegram before we have an opportunity to fire off our withdrawal, and it asks the court to bear in mind that this was a Thanksgiving week, it was a three-day week, and Sunday of that week uh, we couldn't fire it back. Obviously, that evening. I'm not sure. Oh, no, Mr. O'Reilly, do we? Whether the board takes the position that if in fact there was not majority support at the time that you tried to withdraw your offer, the contract bar rule would apply. We don't, do we know the board's position on that? The, we know the board is not taking a position on that, uh, Justice uh, Scalia. They have res expressly reserved right. so, uh, that so, issue. Even so though the court of your answer to Justice Stevens' question has to be, we really don't know. The board's going to tell us someday. But in this case, just so I have it clear in my own mind, did they make a factual determination one way or another as to whether there really was a majority or not? Uh, they did not, uh, Justice. They did there, not. there was no evidence There's no submitted. finding one way or the other. Uh, that, that is correct. In fact, there was no evidence at all submitted by the general counsel uh, to, or by you. to attempt to support that there was no, uh, that there was a majority status. Our evidence was that we had... Uh, you had a good faith out. I understand that. But well, did not, you also try to prove that there was, in fact, no majority? 
Yes, and we and we and, and was there a finding on that point? No, no, there was no finding. The uh, the administrative law judge, as well as the board, said it's immaterial. We don't have to get into that because at the time uh, the uh, the company had a, an acceptance. Therefore, the rest of the evidence that was, and this was a three-day hearing, most of which uh, dealt with our evidence that we had the basis for a good faith doubt. But the uh, administrative law judge and the board said. All of that is immaterial because there was an offer acceptance, and Sunday evening you had a contract, so it's too late to... Well, the uh, way you describe it, it sounds as though the, at least the administrative law judge's ruling was that even though you had been able to prove that there was no majority support, it was irrelevant. And yet I understood you to say the board took no position if you could prove that fact. The, the board, in its, uh, petition, in its brief uh, to this court, has expressly reserved and said that that might be a different consideration, but we're not going to get into that because we feel a good faith doubt case, which which they claim this is, uh, is different from a actual loss of majority case. So they 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 are hypothesizing, say it might be different, but they are not expressly taking that position. Well, what's and, the effect of that case from this court in '61, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union case? Where presumably we held it was an unfair labor practice for an employer to enter a collective bargaining agreement with a union that in fact lacks majority support. Is that uh, good law as I, far as you know? I think it's excellent uh, law, uh, Justice. So do you think it's open to the board to, to alter that rule? We, we would suggest it's not. And, and I would remind the court that it is, and I'm sure I don't have to, that in that case, there was an unknowing violation. The employer was under the false impression at the time of entering the agreement. It felt the union, in fact, was a majority union when it was established that after the fact that it was not, the court said that contract that you thought was a contract with a majority union is illegal. Mr. That, that's correct. And, and the ironic aspect of, of, of this case is uh, I, I find it difficult to reconcile the logic of the ILG, which says it's an unfair labor practice, even unknowingly, to enter into a contract with a minority union. Mr. O'Reilly, is, is, is there something different uh, in a union that has never been certified by the board, which I take it was the ILGWU case, where there's a concern that maybe it's a sweetheart union, and here where the board was, the union was certified, and had a long-term bargaining relationship with the company? There is a possible or a definite argument, certainly during the one year after the certification, uh, that there was a legitimate recognition. But this certification in this case goes back uh, at least a generation. So I, I think the mere fact that they were certified... But the is, employer is the, at any point could have asked for a new, new election. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Instead of, instead of renewing the contract. That's, that's but then why, why is the, are you saying the contract bar rule is unlawful? No, Your Honor. No, well, the contract not. bar rule has to start somewhere. It, it so, so what, and, and I take it it's up to the board, basically, but, to say where it starts. But a contract bar rule would never be based upon uh, a, uh, an agreement that in turn is an unfair labor practice. When, when a, a, an employer enters into an agreement with a union not maintaining majority status, that contract would not legitimately serve as the basis for a contract bar. So we're saying that if you adopt the contract bar rule by analogy in this case, we are saying that when that telegram was fired off, the union more than likely knew, and we definitely knew, that they didn't maintain a majority status. But even status. if they've lost their majority status during the time of the contract, and a different people, group of well, people that, come in and say, look, we represent the workers now, junk that, no. you can't do anything about it. That's correct. So that and principle has to start someplace. So I want to see what's, what's wrong, what's illogical about starting it. 
I think you have to focus on when was the collective bargaining agreement that is that serves as a basis for the contract right. What was the status of the offer and acceptance? What was the status of the parties as of that offer and the acceptance that created that the contract? We're saying in this case, if the status of the union as of the date of that reported acceptance was that the union did not maintain a majority status, there cannot be a contract and the implications of a legitimate contract do not flow. A legitimate contract of course, creates for the balance, if it's a three-year or less contract, for the balance of that collective uh, bargaining, there is an irrebuttable presumption that the union, notwithstanding its actual status over the uh, three years, there is an irrebuttable presumption that it has maintained its majority status so as to encourage the parties to deal with each other. We do not have that premise, namely a legitimate majority status at the time of the inception of this, or conception, I guess, of uh, this agreement. Have employers ever uh, appended to their offer a clause that says uh, if you accept this offer, execution of the contract uh, will be subject to our uh, determining within seven days that uh, you continue to have a majority status? I, I have not encountered that type of uh, situation, but uh, this decision, uh, if it is upheld, might encourage uh, that, uh, that type of uh, uh, penetrator to, uh, to an offer. I, I, again, there, as I there, there really would be no bar in, in, the, in labor law from appending such a clause to the offer? I, I think the Labor Board might have a problem with that. It's one thing to uh, append something such as this, this contract is only valid for X days or uh, sundown tonight uh, the offer is uh, withdrawn, but to put uh, something like that onto it uh, may, might cause some problems at the, uh, the Labor Board. With respect uh, to the Board, they did this twice because the First Circuit said the first time it wasn't good enough. What deference, if any, do we owe to the Board's drawing this line where it did and explaining it? I think the deference that uh, this court traditionally uh, gives to uh, labor board decisions is not applicable here. Uh, you always, uh, the court has always uh, conditioned it. We will uh, defer to the board as long as the board's ruling is uh, rational and consistent with the act. Our position, of course, is here it's not rational because it's... it's, it's and there it's, you're it's, taking on the First Circuit, too, which decided it was rational. The, uh, well, I... Not in the presence of some people in this court ever going to call the First Circuit uh, irrational, but uh, they... From time to time. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did determine, without saying why, really. They, of course, they sent it back, uh, you will recall, in the first instance, saying that uh, the board's decision really didn't say anything. It cited a few cases had, having nothing to do with this factual situation. And then after the board finally, and uh, in, in the court did create a rather impossible task for the board. It said, all right, to take this irrational result and give us a rational basis for it. And I don't blame the board for taking, and even though the court said, do this expeditiously, I don't blame the board for taking two and a half years to come up with an attempt to rational, rationalize what I think is an irrational result. Did the board give you an opportunity to prove that, in fact, there was no majority status? Yes, right. We had a three-day hearing before the administrative law judge. Did they make a finding that, that you couldn't, that you hadn't proved it? No. What their finding was that all of the evidence we presented, this is both the administrative law judge as well as the board itself, all of the evidence we had presented over this three-day period was immaterial in view of the fact that there was a contract and therefore we could have all of the evidence, people swearing on Bibles that they uh, didn't uh, want this union there, that's immaterial because there was a then contract. I find it difficult to understand how it can possibly be said that the, uh, that the question of whether uh, actual non-majority status uh, 
would suffice to avoid the contract bar rule is not in this case. How could it possibly be said that it's not in this case? Well, I, my, my position, of course, it is in this case, notwithstanding perhaps inartful phrasing of mine in, in the uh, petition for certiorari. Apart from the question, may I ask you, where in the papers before us is there either a pleading or an argument by you or your client that there was, in fact, no majority status? Do the papers anywhere show that you made that argument and preserved it in a pleading? Yes, Your Honor. And where? And in the two decisions of the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, if I may, on page 3A, this is the second decision of the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, Appendix uh, 3A, where the, where the court described the uh, scenario as, follow, as follows. 3A of the... No, of the... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, yes, of the, of the uh, petition. The, and the Court of Appeals said the board thus refused to allow the company to present evidence... Where on page 3A are you reading from, Mr. O'Reilly? The middle of the page. I, I think I see uh, yes, the, the middle of the page. Go ahead. Thank you, Mr. Chief. The board thus refused to allow the company to present evidence that the union, in fact, lacked majority support at the time it accepted the company's outstanding offer. It's almost identical comments are made by the Court of Appeals in the earlier decision. Yes, but the preceding sentence says that the board affirmed the ALJ's refusal to consider the company's defense that at the time the union accepted the company's contract proposal, <laughs> the company entertained a good faith doubt. Yeah. So it's, it describes your defense as one uh, that, they, that you entertained a good faith doubt. That's correct, Your Honor. And you're and saying there was a, an additional defense. That, it was, we used the same evidence to support yeah, I know, the same I argument. realize you had the same evidence. And but is there some pleading that you filed in which you said one of your defenses is they, in fact, did not have majority status? I would, I would have to ask, leave the court to stray from the record. I had, in view of the, when I saw in the uh, response brief, the, the question being raised that we had not raised this below, I pointed out to uh, uh, Brother Counsel, there were seven separate provisions in our brief to the administrative law judge, same separate uh, seven uh, provisions in our brief to the board. Forgetting the brief for a minute, how about your pleading? Now, in, in, the, in the pleading, Your Honor, the, our response said only we had a good faith doubt. This was filed at the time of the original complaint. But in our, in our briefs to the board and our briefs to the First Circuit, as well as the First Circuit's opinion, they refer to uh, the loss of majority status. So you say you raised it to the board then? In, in our briefs, Your Honor, uh, but not in our answer expressly. And did the board refuse to consider it because you hadn't raised it in your answer? The, the board's position was that uh, the, the evidence, whether it, whether it purported to go to a good faith doubt or to a lack of majority status, was immaterial in view of uh, the contract having been, having been formed. If I may reserve the balance of my time, Mr. Chief Justice. Very well, Mr. O'Reilly. Uh, Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the narrow issue before this court is the reasonableness of a rule of the National Labor Relations Board that concerns the timing of an employer's assertion of a good faith doubt about a union's majority status. Well, what would the situation be, Mr. Seaman, if in fact there were no majority support at the time the union tried to accept the offer? Justice O'Connor, the board has not addressed that issue, and it reserves it in this case. It would obviously present very different considerations in light of decisions such as ladies' garment workers. 
but we emphasize that at issue in this case is only a claim of a good faith doubt of majority well, status. Is it possible that if in fact there was no majority support that it would be an unfair labor practice for the employer to enter the contract? It is possible, but I would emphasize that one important difference to which uh, Justice Ginsburg alluded between the present context and garment workers is that garment workers involved a voluntarily recognized union, whereas the present case involves a union that was certified by the board. Was there anything in the opinion that made it turn on that, do you know? The board framed its rule in terms of a previously certified mm -hmm. union, and its prior decision on this in the same context called Belcon also dealt with a previously certified union. And, and is, it, is it your position that uh, the pleadings in this case did not raise the in fact lack of support issue? Emphatically so. In fact, at every stage of the proceeding where petitioner had an opportunity to make a claim that of an actual loss of majority support, it failed to do so. In its answer to the general counsel's complaint of an unfair labor charge, it specifically asserted a good faith doubt, but did not assert a loss of But in its briefs below, it tried to <clears throat> present that issue? No, that's, uh, that is also inaccurate in our view. In the objections to the ALJ's decision, the petitioner only complained about the ALJ's finding regarding its failure to establish a good faith doubt. And I would refer the court to the petition appendix, the white brief, at page 85A, in which the board, uh, in delivering its first decision in this case, stated, we agree with the, with the ALJ that under established board precedent, one now, where, where on the page are you reading from, Mr. Sanders? I'm reading from uh, the beginning of footnote 85 on page 85A. Okay. We agree with the judge that under established board precedent, once the board finds that the parties have reached a binding collective bargaining agreement, it is unnecessary to consider the issue of a respondent's alleged good faith doubt of the union's majority status. I would also refer the court to page 54A of this same filing, which is from the board's second supplemental opinion in this case. On page 55A, the very last sentence in the footnote states, we further emphasize that the case before us does not involve allegations of an actual loss of majority status. And this is the board's opinion. This is the board's supplemental decision in this case. Well, I, I suppose the, the only way we really know uh, that the, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, that, that we know in a legal sense that the board, that the union doesn't have majority status is that there's been a certification or a decertification petition in an election. That certainly uh, is it, the it, preferred it seems way. To me the employer is being put in a in a very difficult position here, where uh, it makes the, the quite careful, measured statement that it has good faith doubt, which is the, uh, a, a term of art in the labor law, and then you fault him uh, for not saying that he knew. Uh, it, it, it really amounts to a, a very trivial difference, it seems to me. Well, one of, one of the reasons that the board has developed the good faith doubt rule is the recognition that it can be difficult in the absence of a decertification to prove an actual loss of majority status. And it seems to me that the employer acted quite consistently with the dictates of the labor uh, board and the dictates of the labor law in that regard. The labor law permitted it to assert a good faith doubt. 
but it also required it to take other steps to either withdraw its offer uh, and then assert the good faith doubt, to petition for an election before the new agreement was entered into uh, by the union's acceptance of its offer. Um, and it shouldn't be lost sight of that the employees themselves had an opportunity to file a petition for decertification during the window period from 60 to 90 days before the collective bargaining agreement expired, and again, after the agreement expired and before a new one was entered into. But isn't the force of your argument somewhat undercut by the fact that the board is reserving the question of what the result should be if, in fact, the claim was and was proven that there had been a loss of, 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 of majority support? Uh, because one of your arguments is there is need to have a bright line rule for the sake of stability and industrial peace once a contract has been formed. But now I understand the board is saying, well, we reserve the question whether there is such a need if it can be shown that the union actually had lost majority support. Uh, so if it seems to me that the practical effect of that is, is going to be uh, that so long as that question is reserved, that any employer with a good faith doubt is going to make, in good faith, a claim uh, that, in fact, uh, majority support was withdrawn. I, and, and there goes the whole need for the bright line argument, uh, the whole justification based on a bright line argument. I acknowledge, Justice Souter, that one of the difficulties that would arise from creating a different rule for claims of actual loss of majority status from the rule that applies to good faith doubt claims is that uh, employers would be tempted to circumvent it by a mere point of pleading to say not only did I have a good faith doubt, but I also believe that the, the union in fact lost majority status. And that may in fact be a consideration that the board could validly take into account um, if and when in the future it addresses the question of whether the rule should be different. But it is. I, I, that's a question for the board because isn't there some doubt as to, as to, uh, to what extent the uh, the government can bind an employee to uh, to be represented by a union that, that, in fact, does not occupy majority status? It, it is a very serious question for the reasons uh, elaborated in the ladies' garment workers' decision. Again, there are differences between that, that decision and this one. So you're saying that the need for the bright line is still there, but there just may be a circumstance in which need or no need, we, we simply cannot have the benefit of. That's right. And, and again, quite apart from uh, em the employer's temptation to plead an actual loss of majority status, it is perfectly logical for the board's rule to operate uh, upon the acceptance of the uh, petitioner's outstanding contract offer. In this case... No, but it would, may, may I interrupt you, though? That would not be the case. The, the board is reserving the question, as I understand it, whether any bright line rule would operate upon acceptance if it can be shown that at the time of acceptance, majority status had been lost. Isn't that correct? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Okay. That's but correct. that reservation also would be overtaken if the general counsel's Lee Lumber proposal is adopted. Yes, that's also correct. And do you, can you give us any representation of where that proceeding stands? Yes, my, my brother at the bar correctly stated the, uh, pro the posture of the case right now. It is under submission before the board following oral argument, which occurred about a year ago. But I, I would say it, it's far from clear whether the board is going to address the general counsel's argument that the good faith doubt rule should be abandoned. That is not the primary argument uh, in that particular case, and the general counsel emphasizes that the board doesn't need to address it at all. What is the gestation period for a proceeding like this? I'm uncertain of the answer to that. Uh, it, it, Maybe they should think about rulemaking down there at well, the NLN. <laughs> of course, they do, they do from time to time. I recognize that the AFL... Think about it from time to time, you think. 
the, I, I recognize the AFL-CIO uh, takes the position that dependency of Lee Lumber uh, renders the, the grant of CERC improvident. Uh, we, in our judgment, again, it, it is uh, so unclear whether the, how the board is going to rule and whether it's going to rule that that alone doesn't weigh against, uh, against the grant. But by the same token, of course, we wouldn't oppose uh, dismissal uh, on those grounds. The acceptance was a logical point for, for uh, cutting off consideration of claims of good faith doubt, because it was that point in this case that ended the strike and restored productivity at the plant. And from the point of view of the National Labor Relations Act, that's an event of central importance. More generally, when unions accept contract offers from employers, that marks a fundamental alteration in the relationship between the parties. After that point, it's reasonable for the board to require the parties to accept the results of the process and get back to the productive enterprise in which they both have such an important interest. I would also suggest that in any event, it is not necessary for the court in this case to decide whether in lieu of a bright line, the board should have adopted a rule that would require it to determine in every case whether the employer had a reasonable opportunity to investigate and to voice its good faith doubt because Petitioner did have such an opportunity. Most or all of the evidence on which it premised its good faith doubt was received six days before the union accepted Petitioner's contract offer. And as has arisen earlier in the argument, at any time, uh, Petitioner had the option of withdrawing its offer. It also could have petitioned for an election. These options, it didn't take any of these options, nor did it break off negotiations and, and take its, uh, its offer off the table. It, it may ultimately be for the board to balance, but uh, the rule that it's adopted almost uh, encourages employers to continue making allegations as to good faith doubts and disrupting the bargaining process. It seems to me much more sensible to do it uh, post hoc. Well, in, in many ways, the most sensible approach and the approach that is preferred for purposes of the statute is for the employer to file a petition for an election, assuming that the employees themselves has not, have not availed themselves of that right. This court recognized that in Brooks, and it also recognized that the reason for that is that we can justifiably be concerned about employers' attempts to vindicate the rights of employees, especially when the employees themselves have ample opportunity to, this, to assert those rights. The court in Brooks said, in fact, that allowing employers to assert the rights of employees was not conducive to industrial peace. It is inimical to it. But, Mr. Seaman, wouldn't that be a burden for a small company like this? And there's only 23 employees. And wouldn't it be an expense uh, to hire a lawyer to petition the board for an election? Well, it, it, is, it is not necessarily a particularly elaborate Procedure And in this case, of course, the litigation that ensued was you know, quite as, as, as extraordinary as it would have been had, as it might have been had the employer taken the preferred route and filed a petition for an election in the first place. And it also bears emphasizing that the board's rule does not permanently foreclose an employer from asserting its good faith doubt. Instead, if the employer fails to raise the doubt before a union has accepted the offer, the employer simply has to bide its time during the contract term. When the contract expires, it again has an opportunity to assert its good faith doubt. Do the board rules permit this particular employer to go back and raise the other half of the claim? Or has it lost? Have they lost that? I mean, I take it initially they thought there was just going to be one rule, actual good faith, the same. And then they found out there wasn't. There's a division, good faith, they lose, 
actual, we haven't decided. Well, uh, do, do the board rules permit them to go back now or not? I, I'm not certain of the answer to that question, but I would suggest that there is a very good argument that they've waived waived the argument to the extent that the board made it quite clear in both of its decisions that it considered this case as presenting only a good faith doubt. And petitioner could have could have sought reconsideration of the board's decision on the grounds that the board had overlooked one of its claims, but it failed to do so. Well, these our events view, took place in 1988, so it may be a little late to go back and uh, argue about the thing, I suppose. That's right, and I believe that the petitioner in this case had ample opportunity. It was quite clear, it's been clear since the Selenese Corporation decision in 1951, that there are two separate claims uh, that can, can be used to justify a refusal of bargain. One is a good faith doubt, the other is an actual loss of majority status. And, and so petitioner, uh, the, the, board, the clarity of the board's precedent can't be blamed for petitioner's failure to raise both claims if it thought both were grounded in the facts. The board's rule serves the, issue, the interest in repose, for the most part, by, uh, by drawing a bright line after which the parties are required to accept the results of the negotiation process. And it also prevents sandbagging, which can occur where an employer decides that it is going to keep its doubts regarding the union's majority status to itself during the negotiation process and raise them after an agreement has been concluded if it decides in hindsight that the agreement is not to its liking. We're not suggesting that that was operative here, and yet it is a very real concern in the general run of cases. Do we have a, if, uh, a very Judge Campbell's opinion on page 2A of the petition? The second time around, he says, several years ago, the National Labor Relations Board petitioned this court for enforcement of an order, and we retained jurisdiction. The board has now at long last responded. Did the board ever offer any explanation for the years it took, in this case, to reply to the, second, the First Circuit's request? It did not. However, the uh, second board decision was a decision by the full board, and obviously, in general, those take longer to issue than, uh, than Ye decisions years before, longer. before panels. And I would suggest the other, the other consideration may well have been that, that the First Circuit outlined a number of very specific concerns that it wanted the board to address in full on remand, but there's no specific explanation for that. What's at stake here as of this point? What does the enforcement order provide? The enforcement order is, uh, in, includes a usual cease and desist provision, and it also requires petitioner to enter into a contract based on the agreement that was formed when the union accepted petitioner's contract. But, but will that mean back pay or what? Uh, that, that will mean that the employees should be entitled to the benefits of all of the wage and, and conditions provisions of the original contract. If the court has no further questions, that concludes my presentation. Just one other. What was yes. the term of the original contract? Three years. That three years, of course, has long expired. Uh, that's right, and I suppose since the, since the employer has never honored the agreement, it is still open for it to be required to do so. Thank you, Mr. Seaman. Uh, Mr. O'Reilly, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I do want to emphasize the manner in which the First Circuit dealt with this case, and it dealt with it on the basis of being a loss of majority case. And if I may just briefly, in addition to the reference at page 3A, the Court makes identical references on pages 80A, 82A, and in the specific order of remand to the Board, at page 83A, it continuously refers to the issue as being a loss uh, of majority. And it's easy to somehow distinguish 
uh, uh, sometimes confuse the distinguishing factors. In fact, in this case, there's a reference to the Chicago Tribune, the Seventh Circuit case. That was a clear loss of majority case. In the board's uh, brief before this court, it says that has nothing to do with that. That was a lost majority case, and this uh, is a good faith doubt case. Yet, if I direct the court's attention to the board's own decision in this Osceolo case, how does it refer to, on seven different pages of the board's decision in this case, refers to the Chicago Tribune case as being a good faith doubt. It continuously says the employer raised its good faith doubt. So sometimes the distinction between the two is not as clear as we'd like it to be. So I think we have adequately raised the actual loss of majority in this case, notwithstanding the fact it was not expressly raised uh, in the answer uh, to the board. It was raised a number of times in the briefs, and that's how the Court of Appeals addressed it. It remanded it to the board to deal with an actual loss of majority uh, scenario. And the board can't pick and choose, I would submit. Well, even though the First Circuit told us to do it, number one, quickly, we're not going to do that. It had told us to deal with an actual loss majority case. It can't dictate that. That's up to the Court of Appeals. And I, and, and I think the issue is a live one before this court. Certainly, thank you. Thank you, Mr. O'Reilly. The case is submitted.